And we're live with our 184th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm back. <laughs> I'm at, at CK Tricky on Twitter, uh, at CK Tricky in real life. Uh, joined by my co host, <laughs> Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter and in real life. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Wait, are there differences? I don't know anymore, right? Like, hey, everybody, no welcome to another show. <laughs> um, awesome. I know we, we're a little bit behind on posting episodes and a few other things, but um, basically we've just had, uh, you know, Ken was on vacation last week. We've had, you know, life issues happening, you know, get, getting old and taking care of stuff. Yeah, just sucks at times. But but we are we are dedicated to getting back to podcast episodes and talking about news and everything else. Um, Ken, I don't know if you watched the episode with Legendary Pat. Um, while you were away, but it was it was wild. Uh, First, like twenty minutes, and then the last like ten minutes, and then I haven't caught up since. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was interesting to talk about information warfare and you know the current global climate, but you know analysis. I honestly, a lot of it it, it goes to what we were talking about before the podcast, actually where uh, critical thinking of information as it comes into you and trusting of sources, uh, which we don't seem to do a lot of nowadays, right? Like we, we consume and trust social media and people on social media just because they posted a video without doing any sort of analysis. Um, and that's one of the things that's, that's, that's interesting to see in this, in the info warfare, cyber warfare space is how much just kind of analysis legendary Pat was talking about and how much time they spend digging into sources and actually looking into um, provenance of information as opposed to just, Hey, taking, yeah, taking a journal, like one journalist's take or one person's take on any given source of information. Um, I, I know you and I like have a tendency to, you know, spitball off of one or one or so articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think we necessarily talk to people a lot about how we disseminate that information or we gather it. Because um, mm-hmm. I know a, a lot of times when we're pulling those articles, it is um, we're pulling one that looks fairly relevant to us out of a source of, you know, 10 or 15 different locations that the information is coming in from. Um, and there are different outlets that and, and honestly, guys, you know, from a, a podcast perspective today, we are just kind of jumping through hoops. So like bear with us. Right. Um, but uh, like, I know that there's certain locations that I don't have a tendency, like our sensationalized security news. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I don't know if you have kind of that same list in the back of your head of places where I don't like to link articles from, because it's usually not very informative or it doesn't go deep enough. Um and so it, when we're trying to post articles, a lot of it is I, I'm trying to identify a source that looks good to me and they're doing a real analysis as opposed to, to just sensationalizing the news. Um, it, I mean, it, is that your, like, what is your experience when it comes to actually, you know, taking a cynical, yeah, like there are trusted sources and then there are like, you know, there's that, that eye of that, that having an eye on just a cynical eye, you know, be, like you kind of have to, pro- I mean, I think that's probably natural to security people in, in general, but I think being pretty cynical, like, I think I sent you an article where I was rolling my eyes the other day where it was like, mm. 
what what like this isn't this isn't a bypass man and i was like i don't know it, it you read the technical article and it's supposed to be technical anyways and, and it was like wow this is garbage like you know pretty pretty yeah. easy so i said i think i sent it to you i was like I'm like, yeah, I spent because I spent my time reading the entire article and I got down like and I was like, that was it. OK, that That's, was garbage. Uh, and it's yeah. not accurate. And it doesn't go into the underlying root cause and blah, blah, blah. So it's like part who's the source. And then in the other part is like, you know, actually kind of picking apart and dissecting and having a lot of ske heavy skepticism of what you're reading. You kind of have to. And then and then if it seems like, oh, it's past the sniff test, then it's, it's worth talking about, which is pr pr pretty much how we do this, you know, week to week. Yeah. Yep. So. And uh, so along those lines, if you want to learn how to do that, just go triage bug bounty reports for a couple <laughs> yeah, of weeks. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, because there is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I, that's all I should say on that because it does, There, there is quite a bit of just not very there's... well researched articles that come in. I mean, there's really good stuff, but it's, mm. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes it's just like people that are not, they're newer in their career and they're, they're trying mm -hmm. to, and, 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 and in those cases, it's, it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm not going to put anybody on blast for doing that. They're trying to, they're trying to get better at writing. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get, get some visibility out there and they're, they're just trying. So like, you know, that's fine, but you, you do have to recognize when it's someone purposefully putting out bullshit. And then when it's somebody who's just like, no, I just don't know as much as, you know, that I, I'm newer. Right. And, and this is what I know for my level. And this is what I thought might be helpful for someone else. In that in that case, maybe it is helpful for someone at their level or below. Um, and so it was like, I don't, you know, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always, it's always for me, a, a, it depends kind of situation there, but you come across yeah. that for sure. Yep. But yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was calling back into it basically because the reports that come in uh, from what I've seen, and I don't know if you're like, you guys have a more mature bug bounty pipeline and practice but a lot of the reports that i can i've i see coming into smaller um smaller programs there's typically a finding but there might be no recommendation there's no impact statement there's like it and a, and a lot of that is early career people or people that haven't you know they they don't have as much experience on some of the programs and how to write like a fully flushed out report um so doing the initial analysis and triage in those reports as it comes in forces you as a security like pro professional to actually go, go to the root cause, figure out what the impact actually is. I mean, I, you can push that back on the researcher, but a lot of times they won't either understand the ask or they don't like they don't understand your specific program or company in enough depth to actually do that sort of analysis. Um, and That's so you we and do, we do that where, where we go back to them and say like, here, um, maybe your reproduction steps were unclear. Maybe there's parts of uh, your write up that are unclear. Um, and yeah, to your point, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's just not going to work. And it's like, well, we will do everything we can to investigate, but if you can't provide, you know, sort of, reproduction steps that make sense and we can't figure out what you're talking about and we can't reproduce it then it's going to be something that's gonna be dropped right that's yep. the reality yep. you're not going to get paid for it yeah anyway so uh you know validate your sources right that's that's a big thing that 
I guess the takeaway is from our initial conversation here. Um, don't yeah. trust any single source of data, um, like validate who it's actually from, what it actually does. A lot of the tools that we talk about, Ken and I have actually played with previously, or we've got a good idea of how they function. Otherwise we wouldn't bring it up or it wouldn't be interesting to us. Uh, there's a reason that, that those things raise to the level of, Hey, let's have a discussion about it on the podcast. There's a lot that we sift through that we just end up dropping because it isn't super interesting to us. Um, and it might be interesting at some point to talk through why that is, Ken, right? Like when you are looking for interesting pieces of data to talk about on the podcast, what is it that piques your interest? Why is, you know, one article more interesting than another? Yeah, for me, it's like new stuff I haven't seen before or t new takes on old, uh, especially when it comes to attacks. That's always interesting if there's some like novel um way of of doing some variant of an, an attack that's always interesting if there are alternatively like because my interests lie all over the place you know and because i do like from program management to actual hacking everywhere in between it's like you know if if there's dude honestly if somebody has like a cool way of managing an sdl like an open source tool or even just like uh you know an explanation of how a company did their, you know, overhauled their SDL processes. I'm all in. I want to read that. I want to hear about it. I, I think that's super interesting. Same, same goes for, you know, like I said, uh, like the tool that you had, we were talking about before the podcast that was like, at first glance, it was like, eh, this might be bullshit. And then we like looked into it. We're like, oh, this is actually really, really dope. Like this is, this could be pretty, this could be pretty useful, you know? So it is, I have a wide range of interests, but yeah, it's pretty much like typically new things or, you know, even not new things, but just like people sharing things that are helpful. Right. So, yep. And sometimes it's, and I think we got on the whole conversation because I was expressing some annoyance with the whole Twitter mudge thing, because it's like, you have all of these entities who have different interests and they're like using this as they're, they're like, you know, I mentioned Elon, Elon has all, you know, his whole thing is like, Oh, too many bots, all that on, you know, I can back out of the deal type thing. There's an agenda there. There's an agenda for the government to do more regulation and censorship of, you know, people, uh, there's agendas there. There's an allow for more litigation, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but at the end of the day, and then there's Mudge's own agendas, which we can only we can only speculate. guess, right? We don't, we just speculate. We, we, we don't know what's inside Mudge's head, right? And then at the end of the day, the last person that actually matters in all of this, and, and even then it's somewhat questionable. Like, what is your opinion on Twitter that you post publicly? Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about like what we had mentioned before where it's like you're a political act activist and maybe your location's what's sensitive or something of that nature? You know, it it's, it comes down to like, what are we trying? Who are we trying to protect, and what of their assets are we trying to protect? But those people are like seem to be getting the least amount of attention, and seem to be the least bit of focus here. And the the, the, yeah. the broader seems to be like, here's this big tech company. Let's use them as an example for all these other assholes, you know, agendas. And apologies, I'm a little spicy today because I'm super annoyed with uh, some of the goings ons in, in the world. And, and and so this is another one where I was telling you before the podcast, like this whole thing is annoying the crap out of me the longer it goes on just because of that, that whole thing. It's everybody's got an agenda and none of it's really, none of it really is for the people that, yeah, they claim to be trying to protect. So at least that's how it feels. So, yeah, I, I, well, I don't know. I, and I think we, you know, we talked about this when we, you know, we, we dove deep into the whistleblower stuff from Mudge. Um, 
right? Like the, you know, what is the, what is it that we're really concerned about from a security perspective, right? Like, you know, overall security practices at Twitter, how does that affect me on a day-to-day basis or, you know, my data? Because mostly what Twitter knows about me, right? Personally, right? That's Seth Law on Twitter is that, man, I post once in a while, they probably have some location data on where I'm logging in from. But I, I mean, it, it, it's nothing that's really as sensitive as other locations. And so, why is it that this is such a big deal? Is it because it is a public discourse because they have been in the news from a political perspective? Is it because Elon's taking it over, right? There's so many different, to your point, there's so many different, there's agendas. There's so many different agendas and, and the people that are, that are putting that out there have their own agenda and we don't necessarily do critical thinking about the sources as they're coming in, taking away the fact that we don't analyze social media in the same way that we do even like journalistic or journalism and different um, papers and online sources. And so I just, I don't know. Right. Like I'm with you. Um, We're probably giving it way, way more attention than it necessarily needs at this point. Yeah, I know. Uh, but that's that's but going back to it, that was the whole the reason I bring it up is that was the whole idea of, you know, we were, I was talking about like where do you get your sources? How do you how do you decide like, you know, and, and, and what's interesting and what what not just what's interesting but what's valid to talk about? Like what's what's something that that's worth talking about and you know, that's that's part that's definitely a part of it. It's like what is the motivation and intention? It's always um something I think about when I'm reading an article like in something we want to share, like is the intention something that I'm aligned with? And if it's not, I don't want to talk about it, you know, or don't want yeah. to like, you know, give it a ton of attention. So. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, for me personally, right. Like I, um, I, I go back to kind of what you were talking about before, like to leave the much Twitter stuff aside. Um, things that are interesting to me, uh, you know, as far as new tools, new techniques and discovery, um, obviously what I'm, you know, whatever I'm currently like working through, whether that's web three stuff, cause we've been talking about that a lot lately. Um, and, uh, but also like applying lessons learned from other aspects of life to, to my like work life, to security in general, right. Whether that is, Hey, these are, you know, techniques for, you know, being positive or like managing stress or, you know, you know, anything that that necessarily applies to that. Um, But I do have a tendency to drop out like stuff that's super specific to exploits, right? Um, Like if you go look through things like, you know, what is it? Reddit, R NetSec or, you know, lobster security, they'll do deep dives into, Hey, there's this one specific edge case with XSS. And I'm like, man, I, I really, it doesn't affect me yeah. from a day-to-day perspective. Right. Like, I, I mean, I think we've talked about XSS in the past, like <laughs> at this point, like we, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I, I mean, you know, like there was uh what was it? Um, Gareth the Hayes had some uh, oh, yeah. article with injection that was shared and, you know, stuff like that can certainly be interesting, but um, you know, and, uh, and also there, there's that thing of, like you said, where with work where it's like, well, there, there are times where say, what's that? Did I lose you? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Yep. Oh, I think, I sorry, I might you. be having internet issues or something. No, I, I see you and I can hear you now. Um, am I good? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Yep, go ahead. Okay, cool. Uh, man, I forgot what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, like, so, um, yeah, so bringing work and life into into the, sort of the mix. And that's, like, you know, who knows? Maybe, like, template injection is a big thing that I'm interested in right now because of some technology we're implementing or whatever it might be, right? So those, those things are helpful for that. But, yeah, it's like, dude... At the end of the day, it's like the same underlying root causes of all these things. And I think at a certain point, it becomes less about like, it becomes less fun to like, yeah, have another variant of the same old attack. And it's just, it's more interesting to hear about like the modern defenses. Like <laughs> when, when we had Neil on for the first, the first time when he was talking about content security policy, man, that was a fascinating conversation. Like I was really fascinated in content security policy because it's like, this is a modern way to prevent something that is just so hard to actually tackle it's just such a it's such a huge challenge you know it's it's like even if with the best security teams like you're, you're eventually going to have cross-site scripting so it's it's more interesting to have something that like in those cases prevent you know, anyways to go on forever yeah so yeah and well and and to that point right like so we can drop this article in there from gareth right um but again it's it's just kind of a nuance like it's another payload to add to your list of you know an, another way that people can call javascript without parentheses okay that's great but how often do i run into a specific application that prevents the use of parentheses for executing javascript right like i i mean maybe in like the bug bounty world, there's more edge cases where this sort of thing pops up. But in general, from a from a consulting perspective, um, I don't see cross-site scripting near as much in the last you know couple of years as I did you know maybe five years ago. I just like with React applications, with you know SPAs, and you know the preventions that exist in CSP, it's become such a kind of non-issue to me that this sort of thing, well, interesting from a, an attacker perspective is really less, it's become less interesting to me personally. Right. Um, so yeah, we'll post it up there and we'll talk about it. There's interesting research that happens along all these avenues, but um, it's, it's not as interesting to me as say a new tool that's going to um, like this other one that we were looking at, the the tool that's looking at 403 bypasses. Where do I have that? Um, yeah. Sorry, yeah. what were you going to say? No, I was going to say the one thing I think that is interesting to me right now uh, and, and not necessarily a technical thing is the whole Patreon security team. Ooh, yes. Bit. I mean, that 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 is, man... I don't know even where to begin with that one. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or if, uh, you know, if you like what your sure. thoughts are. Yeah. So um, first of all, maybe we should, do you want to summarize the situation for people? Yes. So I, I mean, it came out what, like this last week, right. Um, that Patreon through for whatever reason laid off it, what was said at the time, right um their full security team right um and like there was a few yeah I, I mean there's been a lot of articles posted about it obviously laying off your full security team is probably not the 
uh, the safest way to go about, um, yeah, like securing yeah, let, your platform, right? I mean, go they, ahead. they let go set. They, no, I was going to add to that. They laid off 17% of their workforce in total. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in general. So, but basically it was security. That was a huge part of that. Yeah. And, and you know, um, when they finally responded to it, they said that the security layoffs were not a part of the general, what, 17%, but it was due to a strategic shift in how they were implementing security. Um, what that actually means, if they're moving to a, you know, a model where they outsource some of the security or they're doing something else, we don't know, uh, basically, as an industry. There was a lot of uh, finger pointing that went on. If you look at the different articles that were posted about this uh, from a, oh crap, Pat- Patreon has now like completely, they just don't care about security anymore. And, you know, why is this happening? And go hire these guys. They're probably, they're fine. I think it just was a lot of um, speculation as to what's going mm-hmm. on with a lot, without a lot of information. Um, and again, this goes back to that agenda that we're talking about, right? Like the, you know, obviously if you get let, let go and you are a security professional, um, like people are going to see that, right? Whether it's LinkedIn profiles or whatever is going on and they're going to start to question what the organization is actually doing. Uh, so, uh, so, so as of today, excuse me, as of two days ago, Patreon confirmed that it laid off five members of its security team. That doesn't sound like the entire security team, but. You know, that I think the original reason that people said I'm, I'm going to backpedal here and say, like, hold yeah. on, maybe it's not as much of that 17 percent as we figured. Because I figured because it, as I'm rereading this, there was not an initial denial that they laid off the entire security team. And there was confirmation they laid off five people. So there was sort of this idea that it could be anywhere in between those two numbers, like five people and the entirety of the security team. Um but yeah, no, so they said it's uh, five people as of today, plus another 80 employees. Um, and they deny that the five people that were laid off from security represent the entire security team. So they finally put out there that's not the entire uh, security team. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's probably more a, a, a story of, okay, if... Um, if you are going to lay off or fire critical employees, and again, this probably goes to Twitter too, you probably want to get ahead of that story as an organization, right? Um, so the one of those members posted on LinkedIn, and that's where it all spun from is, hey, I got laid off from my job. They, they, they fired the whole security team and Patreon just didn't have a response to it. And so it got picked up by the different security feeds, Twitter and security news channels, and they posted about it. Um, And so now they're trying to backpedal and actually, well, not necessarily backpedal, but um, explain their side of the story. Because it does seem like a kind of a regular thing. They've just shifted in priority. And I, I mean, who... honestly we don't know right i know through some back channels that it wasn't the full story right like you know um there's some other slack channels that we're in that we were hearing through the grapevine that it wasn't the full story Mm -hmm. what we're seeing now is probably more appropriate um as opposed to the the hot takes that people had on that 
I do. I do. Well, because there was this, uh, there were statements and I was trying to actually find out where those statements were. Cause I've, I've read them in multiple places where it was, we're actually going to have those functions go to our developers essentially is how it read and, and what it sounded like. And so, uh, I th- so here's what here's what I think people interpreted that as we're laying off our security team and the engineers are going to take care of that. And yeah, that was true. <laughs> that would be awful. <laughs> that would that would be terrible. Right. You do need obviously still like security champions are great, which is what an engineer who's got a security minded sort of like bend to them is. But there is a total difference between that and, you know, real security. Right. Um, yeah. But well, it doesn't set, sound like that's the, for the organization. Yeah, because you have to have a guy, you have to be, have somebody wrangling requirements, uh, training, you know, a lot of the things that uh, I could go on. That, that's a whole other hour episode of in and of itself of all the things that essentially a security team who's governing security champions uh, should do or would do in a, an organization of Patreon size. I think they've made like three and a half billion dollars in a year. And they've got, I think uh, I'd read... Um, I don't know, like if, if 80 people, 250,000 creators and something like 8 million users, something like that. So in a pretty large workforce. So having said that, um, yeah, you, you would need to to govern a lot of things as security who is managing these security champions. That's that's my point. But I don't think they're saying that they're giving all of the security back over to the engineers at all. It doesn't sound like that. They, they did kind of make it sound like that in the wording. Um, I would hope that's not the case. I think it's great, like I said, to empower developers to be security minded. I don't think it's okay to offload all of your uh, security to developers. Yeah. There's also like security is a host of things. Like most people don't realize, I say most people, most people who are, sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) Most people who are not in security don't realize like there are many, many functions as it pertains to platforms like this, because you're going to have your abuse, anti-abuse stuff. You're going to have teams dedicated to, of course, everybody knows about cloud and infrastructure stuff, but there's a lot, lot, lot of lesser known things around compliance and risk and yeah, just a whole bunch of interesting security functions uh, that occur beyond what people might typically consider to be security. Yep. So, Yeah. So I, again, take it with a grain of salt, right? Like the, the initial hot take on a lot of these is probably not the full story. Um, so before jumping to conclusions, uh, yeah, investigate what those sources are, what their actual, what their agenda is in, in pushing that out. Because um, a lot of this did come from one of those employees or one of those, um, yeah, one of the people that got laid off. So, you know, they probably weren't in the best headspace when they started posting this stuff and it just got picked up. Um, Which is so, one of the benefits yeah. of doing a weekly podcast that we don't really ever talk about is that if you notice, like we're not on Twitter giving immediate hot takes, right? Like we, we joke that we're giving hot takes, but usually when we're talking about something like a Patreon or whatever, Twitter or whatever, we're usually talking about it days after even maybe a week or so after uh, all of that information that is relevant has come out. And so, yeah, it's a hot take in the sense that we're catching up on all that, but we usually let enough information service to comment on it. And that's why, as you know, I am not a fan of hanging out on Twitter anymore because it has turned into that. Here's information I need to comment on immediately to be relevant. And that like yeah. doesn't work because you're probably going to just add fuel to the fire, but doesn't help anyone, you know? So anyways, like, 
whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of finger pointing that goes on in that initial analysis before we, we know what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So the other tool. <laughs> Croc takes. I love it. This needs it's to be on takes. a shirt, man. That's awesome. <laughs> we need our socks and Crocs shirt to, yeah. Crocs and socks, whatever it is, shirt to be yeah, done. Um, sweet. Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, the other tool that I actually posted on the, um, in, in both channels, right? Like, so on YouTube and in Slack was the don't go 403, DevPoint, um, GitHub repository. This one I found. Um, oh, yeah. Because of Clint Gibbler, right? Uh, if if you are not subscribed to TLDR Sec, you should be. Um, it's a great source of data, information, and news. Uh, Clint has a very good way of distilling down what's interesting. Some of, again, like what he posts, some of it is interesting to us, some of it isn't. Um, But this one, in this case, was, you know, it's a fairly useful tool to add to our arsenal when we're doing some sort of an assessment. Um, A few, you know, episodes ago, I don't remember exactly how long ago, I did talk about uh, bypassing 403 through a proxy uh, or through a WAF. Um, This takes that a bit further and actually has a list of different locations and different places that you can use to bypass uh, 403 responses from any sort of WAF or proxy just based on controls. Again, user-controlled data that's going into the request, whether that is location headers, whether that is parameters or whatever else, right, that goes into it. They've got a few places that they do that. Um, the interesting thing there, I, I'm, I'm actually going to do a pull request on it and have them add in that other finding that I had because it would be useful there too with it. Um, oh, yeah. You want to show just the, the demo there quick from Don't Go For It? Yeah, pretty easy, right? They they have a, an API or a server there they're sending requests to, a URL rather. Uh, sorry, if you're listening, you, you're probably going to want to watch this part on the video. Uh, we're at like 30 minutes in. Um, so yeah, if you go to the, the actual, um, if you're viewing this, you can see what we're seeing, which is, yeah, you see like up above, it's got some custom paths. It's getting 403s, 429s, 404s, uh, and then it in 403, and then it starts doing some um, with the endpoints or the HTTP paths that it's requesting. It starts modifying them so in the capitalization modifications it basically you see like the you know forward slash app forward slash beta beta can't talk today uh they've got you know beta as b-e-t and then capital a and then they have the next one is b-e capital t lowercase a and so they've got just very variations and that's basically what it's doing and i think it speaks to yeah now i'm gonna pause because seth you've actually come across this we talked about it if like i don't know a month ago two months ago um you coming across this. I know you talk about it in the secure code report, secure code review course, but yeah, do you want to speak to sort of like how, how this, how you've seen this in the past? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, if, if the, if the developers or like the um, people that put in the WAF have any sort of regular expressions associated with like beta in this case, right? Like uh, they're not, uh, they're in, they're not ignoring case to do their match. And so hence like a capital A is different than a lowercase a, but the web server on the back end or the application server interprets them, it ignores the case. So it's that mismatch or edge case that's actually 
allowing the traffic to flow through to bypass the 403. I, the, the instance that I actually saw was a case of URL encoding, which could do the same thing, where if you were URL encoded one of the um, characters in the path, it would bypass the, the WAF and go directly to the page behind the scenes because the web server would do URL decoding, but the WAF didn't do it before it compared in its regular expression. So um, all of these sorts of bypasses can exist. Um, and it's because we have so many steps in this chain when we're getting to an application, right? We have maybe a proxy in place, maybe Nginx in front, like as a web, as a proxy in front of a, you know, or a WAF in front of the application server or the web server. And each of those implements technology in a slightly different manner. Um, that's not necessarily a fault of them, but this is the same mismatch that is taken advantage of for request smuggling and you know other like other avenues that we've seen in the recent in the recent past from a you know a vulnerability class perspective. Uh, the misalignment of these technologies is where the edge cases exist and where the flaws exist, which is what makes this so interesting, right? It's just a, a different edge case, a different way to automate um, analysis of you know 403 responses, and it wouldn't surprise me if this gets added as a burp plugin within the next you know, <laughs> couple of weeks, right? Okay, so that's the thing, man. That's what I would say, like, because as, as cool as this, the, you know, that this is like that. That's at the end of the day with most of these tools. That's what it comes back to is people just end up taking out their payloads and loading them up in Burp Intruder because Intruder will not just look at you know response codes. It'll analyze. It'll allow you to do anything. It'll allow you to like timing it allow you to analyze timing and allow you to, to analyze the content uh length responses because you and i know sometimes a 404 is not a 404 right sometimes yeah. a 302 is not a 302 even it's a you know it's it's the we oh man we've talked about this before where the chain of execution in a authorization function doesn't work like you think still allows chain of execution sends back a 302 in a redirect but it still renders the entirety of whatever page you're requesting that you shouldn't have access to and so then in burp you go and change your proxy to like change 302 or 301 to like in the location headers and to strip the location headers and change the response code and then boom you're stripping that in the, the response and you're operating on the site as, as normal. So, but, but back to your point, that's what I think people always do, right? They just take a tool like this, they strip out the payloads, they, they put it into burp and that's typically how, how, how it works. So, yeah. yeah. And I know everybody's going to say, well, what about zap? And I'm like, I don't, what use about zap, it? So. <laughs> exactly. I don't use it. So I don't, I don't tell you. Yeah. You use it, I'm cool. sure. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there's ways to add the same thing in, in Zap yeah, sure. or, you know, functionality to be pushed in there. Um, if that's your tool of choice, uh, you know, hey, you know, yeah, we've just been around for a long time and, and have uh, settled on to burp. So I, I was telling somebody that like, I remember back on like uh, years, years ago, every time you would see someone talk about burp or uh, uh, intercepting proxy, you'd see Simon from the from the uh, zap project pipe up and be like, Hey, have you heard about zap? And it was like, it was like the Bitcoin scamming, not sorry. I'm not saying it's a scam. I'm just saying it's similar in that. Like we're, we're like, every time we mention something about a coin or, you know, Ethereum or whatever blockchain stuff or DeFi or web three, immediately we get hit up responded responses on Twitter about all that stuff. So, but anyways, whatever. Uh, yeah. It was just kind of funny. That used to be like the thing. If you said burp, usually you get a, like, Hey, have you heard of zap? Type thing. If you heard of zap? So, yes. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of which, the Ethereum, uh, you know, switch has happened. I don't know if that's, uh, or not speaking of burp, speaking of Web3, right? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, hey, sorry. One last thing. Yeah. Before we go into that, did you know that Burt or Port Swigger's up to like a hundred and something employees now? Like I think like 121 employees or something like that. That's pretty awesome. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty huge, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, honestly, right? Like, you know, I know uh, like, I yeah, because we use Burp and, you know, we've grown as a consultancy. I know I send them more money today than I did, you know, a few years ago. Um, and you know, as far as a tool that's being used, it's useful to us. Like I don't have a problem doing that. So it's, it's good to see that they grow and they do provide quite a bit of updates, research. You know, there's been a lot of interesting things. Obviously we've had James Kettle on the podcast. He's one of their researchers. Um, and you know, they support the community pretty heavily. So it's a, you know, it's a good organization. Not that Zap and OWASP doesn't as well. Um, but it's good to have two different tools that are pushing each other sure. and competing with each other. Right. I, I mean, when you and I first got into the space, I don't know if like, if you've always been on burp, but my initial experience with, you know, intercepting proxies was, uh, you know, things like web scarab was the most useful to me. And, uh, you know, yeah. or fiddler, fiddler back in the day. And those, like you look at them now, cat, do you remember cat? Cause I, I yeah. used cat for a while. Cause I was like, this is pretty cool. And it just yeah. died off. But yeah. Yep. Yeah, there was all sorts of these like different um, tools that were out there and didn't quite fit the space or didn't keep uh, they yeah they they didn't keep getting developed on or whatever it is. But now we're seeing even better ones pop up, right? Um, like I would argue that like uh, Proxy Man and some of those that are out there have a slicker interface and are easier to use than Burp Suite. Um, but we're so embedded with Burp Suite and we know it now that it's hard to get away from that, especially the extensions. The ability to do extensions is huge, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Anthony brings up a good point about their enterprise platform too. Now they've got that, which is like what was requested for so long as a way to support, yeah, enterprise type yep. style testing. Yeah, I, I have issues with the enterprise platform. I'll be honest, right? I haven't uh, used it. I, I need maybe I need to go back and revisit it, um, but like it was. Uh, but at the time, granted, I I should be fair. It's been a few years since they released it, and it was definitely kind of beta ish software at the time. I'm sure it's gotten better since then. Um, but my initial take on it was, uh, feels like we're going a few years back on you know from a scanning enterprise scanning perspective. Um, so I I should revisit it because it is a like. Burps, the burp scanner in and of itself is so powerful in the desktop application that if they can apply that to the enterprise, it'll just become a, a you know, a better tool for, for scanning your apps, right? It, it definitely can't be as bad as 2010 web inspect. <laughs> that was the most <laughs> awful <laughs> shit ever. And Maintaining always... authentication state. Yeah. 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 Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that whole thing. So many issues. So many issues, yes. but anyways, uh, I, I mean, that was, that was a long time ago. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Um, sweet. So that was don't go 403 and apparently a rant on burp suite. And... Oh, Ethereum. I'm sorry. I cut you off. You're going to talk about the Ethereum. Oh merge. yes. The Ethereum merge. So Ken, what do you know about the Ethereum merge? I know they changed to proof of stake so that computationally it wouldn't be as difficult. Uh, it would 
to reduce computation by, I think, 99.9%, which means energy usage would go like way down. Um, yep. I read up on what proof of stake is, and now I totally forget. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to remind people. I think I even talked about it on the podcast. That's what happens. I read things, learn it, and totally forget. Okay. So proof of work versus proof of stake. Um, so Bitcoin and Ethereum, the first version, right? Not, not what they've actually merged to now were uh, proof of work um, blockchains, right? So basically to mint or to, um, to perform work on the blockchain, you were um, rewarded for doing work, right? So for Bitcoin, you, you have a mining rig that runs a bunch of calculations. You're rewarded in being able to uh, generate the next chain or you know, you know, put the next chain onto the blockchain and you get paid for that, right? That's proof of work. Whereas proof of stake is um, the, the, the chain itself writes a new block and rewards someone who has coin or um, stake in the, the blockchain, right? So they, they hold a bunch of Ethereum and those, um, the people that have stake are rewarded with, um, yeah, with points or with coin for having stake on the chain. So it, it, it allows for um, faster uh, generation of the blocks on the blockchain because it doesn't require these large, expensive uh, crypto calculations to be done, which reduces the cost and allows it to be more regular as far as like uh, generating those chains before they're or generating the blocks before they're put on the chain. Um, I mean, that that's the simple explanation. Obviously, you can go read up on it you know, at ethereum.org if you want to know more uh, or, you know, the the different that's the the difference between these mining rigs that you see out these out there for, um, I mean, it was Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin for a long time. You could mine on either chain. And if you were able to write that next block, then you got paid out based on what that actually was. Um, but it became more and more expensive over time because number one, the, uh, you know, the crypto got harder to do. Um, and it was all based on how much capacity was out there. So the more miners that were available, the harder it was to actually earn rewards, which made it more expensive uh, because you would have to add more miners to your <laughs> to your pool in order to actually get that reward back. And so it was this kind of competing um, large capacity that was out there. Now nowadays, right? Like it's all about stake. So the more money that you put into Ethereum the more likely you are to actually be able to get that reward out. Right. Mm. So, so it's kind of flipped it. Um, but that, that was the conversion is Ethereum has moved from proof of work, which is the mining rigs to proof of stake, which is just, I've invested so much money in Ethereum that, you know, I get that back out. I get a small percentage back out. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. No, it, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. What do you think the uh, ramifications of this are? Well, if you talk to the miners, they hate it, right? Because it means that all these rigs that they have from an Ethereum perspective are no longer needed, right? So mm -hmm. they've got to switch to something else. 
um, in order to pay for, you know, to cover their costs, whether that's rolling back to Bitcoin, choosing another proof of stake blockchain, whatever it is. Um, I think from an Ethereum perspective, the reason that they've moved off of it is they recognize that there was a um, there was a significant cost like energy and um, just like climate costs to what they were doing. Right. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you start generating that much heat, you start, you know, taking that much energy and realistically, yeah, it mines the block on the Ethereum blockchain. But what other value does that add to the community, to the world at large? Um, so and then from a stability perspective, it means that it's going to be more stable as far as how often blocks are mined, um, how often they can be put onto the blockchain, how quickly that can happen. Uh, so it's a I mean, overall, I, I think it's a good thing. There's a reason why Ethereum decided to go that direction. Um, it's just interesting that they finally pushed it through. We'll see what actually happens as far as the merge goes right um i for a long time they're like they've had ethereum 2 right which was the uh, ethereum that was proof of stake as opposed to ethereum which was the uh, proof of work but now it's all just ethereum again uh reading it i was trying to see what people think uh security wise about this merge first thing i came across was uh the network makes it more vulnerable to attack um, I don't know. I, I have to actually read because that's what I was going to ask you. Is like, well, are there security? Do we think like it's going to be more vulnerable, less vulnerable, same? Any change there? You know, I, I don't know because there's quite a bit like the you know there's there's discussions that can happen around um, right the the length of time that it takes to mine a block right means that records and um, transactions aren't recorded on the blockchain until that block is mined. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's denial of service, there's repudiation issues. There's issues that you issue that, uh, with, you know, executing a transaction and then having to wait, you know, five to 10 minutes to actually have that mined on the blockchain. Um, Mm -hmm. what does that do from a, you know, uh, a money transfer perspective is it too much time are there like transactions that won't go through because of it right so uh, it, it's not just hey i'm going to take over someone's account it's there's there's other kind of real world consequences that you have with those timing issues that were associated with both ethereum and bitcoin because of the time it took to to mine those different blocks and the variability that went into it um so I, yeah, like, they, they're saying like during during the merger, there will be a gap where where you're going to know ahead of time. Um, like the actual writing here is it says uh, the extra information that proof of stake provides validators may reduce its security to some degree. But proof of stake incentivizes accurate block validation over the yep. time. The problem of two consecutive blocks will be solved because they were saying, you know, the possibility of validator, validators being in, informed ahead of time about which blocks are validating uh, could enable them to manipulate the price with two consecutive blocks using two consecutive yep. blocks. Yeah. So, so I, I, yeah, but I that's mean, temporary. That it sounds like that's, that's, yeah, that's, there's a yeah. limited window for that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, overall, I think, you know, I feel like it's a good thing just, you know, coming into the space and seeing what's, you know, what's happening across the board. Um, but I mean, you and I, 
both know people that got into the mining space, you know, years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, and would set that up and you started to talk to them on what their like monthly electricity costs were. And it was insane. Um, just, you know, spending, you know, $2,000 to make 500 bucks. Right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I, I remember this, I remember the heyday when people were putting uh creds source in source code and, you know, there weren't all the protections that there are now. And then people were just like using that to, and also, well, sorry, using that to like infiltrate, you know, cloud services and crypto mine and ramp up numbers. But I also remember uh, Chris Gates and I, we were doing the research for the uh, DevOps or DevOps talks that we gave for a few, uh, years, actually. Um, yep. But in the very early days of that, it was funny because we were using our, uh, we were using Shodan to kind of like find, you know, open vulnerable instances. One of the vulnerable instances Chris came across was actively being mined and like the usage kept spiking up to like 99% or whatever. And he kept wondering like, why is the usage so high? Why is the usage so high? So he looked into it and sure enough is being used. It was a, crypto it was miner. actually, I think a Redis instance that was being used as a crypto miner. Yeah. So, Interesting. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And it was by accident. We were actually just talking about the like vulnerable, like open instances and configuration things and just like how people do it improperly and, and also like inherent risk that lies there because, you know, especially back in 20, I think this is, I don't know, maybe like 2012 when we started piecing it together in 2013 or 2014 when we started publicly talking about it. So it took like a year or two of research. Um, and so, yeah, those were early days. So back then, you know, there was no, for in-memory databases, there was not a whole lot of anything in terms of, and not to say that it's evolved so greatly, <clears throat> but, you know, back then there was nothing, nothing at all. So open instances everywhere. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's quite a bit of research going on in the, in the Web3 space. I mean, we're, we're looking at a lot of contracts and, um, it's, I, I don't know if I've expressed this, but it is definitely like a, um, it's pushing us quite a bit, right? Like I'm having to think about threats in a different manner. Um, and it, yeah, like it's, uh, you know, there, there's so much that's at stake with some of those um, contracts and the amount of money that flows through them or potentially can go through them, uh, that it, it kind of takes things up a, a, another level. Um, you think about most of the consulting that we've done or most of the things that we do from a, you know, a security perspective and, you know, missing a vulnerability. Yeah. Okay. You know, cross-site scripting, somebody can send out phishing or whatever else it is. Um, but when you start talking about the smart contracts, and you know money that's being moved or accessed via wallets and all of a sudden I, I mean look at web3 is going great right somebody drains a whole bunch of wallets and everybody's out 70 million dollars right that's it that's a that's a much bigger kind of risk calculation that goes through my head when we're looking at these um, as opposed to you know what's been you know traditionally the space in the in the past um yeah let's see what else do you want to talk about i'm not sure what Rafine's comment there is in reference Shading to can lead to XSS. Well, HTML injection is XSS to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, template injection is usually can lead to more of like a remote code execution situation. Um, yeah. And resistant. I think file he's, pro- he's probably he's probably talking to our uh, you know 
and like we're talking about XSS is, you know, we're not as super, super as interesting. Oh, not super as amped up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah. You're absolutely right, Rafine. Like there is a lot that, that can lead to it. So doing XSS tests is still important, right? I'll give you that. Uh, No, yeah, yeah. Still, you have to test for it. I'm not saying that it's not something you have to do. I want to be clear about that. Yeah. It's just that when it comes to the podcast and the discussions that Ken and I have, um, it's not as interesting from a, you know, a protection perspective or a, you know, new movement perspective as some of the other things, like even things as simple as open redirects, like new ways to approach those, finding those is, it would probably more warrant more of a discussion from us than something like, Oh, here's another XSS edge case. Yeah. I mean, like after 15 years, it's like how, for me anyways, how, how long can, you know, XSS be super interesting, but it's, it's still something we got to test for. And and honestly, content injection is probably the the right way to classify it anyways, um, versus XSS or HTML injection or whatever. And injection at the end of the day is all the same underlying cause, right? Confusion between data or intentional data and unintentional data. So, um, yep. Anyways, confusion on the system. Sweet. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else do you want to talk about? We got a little bit more time. Oh, do you want to talk about Starbucks and their new NFTs? <laughs> what? I know. Yes, but what? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Shit. All right. Yeah. Let's let me read this. Here's the, here's the press release. And, and, and I, you know, my I have it up. I just yeah didn't get to it yet. Yeah. Yeah. My my take here is that this is the sort of realistic use of nfts that i like i actually agree with i'm gonna be honest <laughs> so i've been explaining to non-technical people recently everybody's been asking well what are what are nfts the the um especially up to this point right um like the the collection of nfts whether it's board ape or whatever else like we have a discussion about it and i think it was uh, my wife kelly was like so basically they're just digital pokemon cards <laughs> and i was like <laughs> kind of yeah it's not and a I'm bad like, way to say it. <laughs> and i'm like yeah and you should probably a- associate about the same value to them that you do to pokemon cards from like a general like user perspective dude, right? dude pokemon cards get expensive i i didn't know about like i, didn't, I mean i know of pokemon but i don't know anything about it until i was like uh my son got into it max got into it a little bit and uh, i was very like oh uh Wow, the the prices of some of these cards are are pretty nuts. But uh, yeah, and to be clear, like to 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 be clear, we have we have friends uh, uh, at Starbucks, right? So yeah, you know, we're we're this is all in love, and uh, but yeah, actually, I'm curious. So you think there's you're you're saying this is actually like the first time you've seen, well, or one of the few times you've seen NFTs be used like with good intent, like it makes sense to use them. Yeah, I, I mean, so, and and this is one of the cases for NFTs that I've, like, like we've talked about a few times. And actually, I've talked with our friends who, who is at Starbucks about this when he, he mentioned it to me, actually, during, you know, DEF CON, right? We, we had a small discussion about it. But um, the, the ability to issue tokens or, you know, to members, like reward members, and then they can use that token to validate and get access to other things 
makes sense to me, right? Like you issue, a, you issue either a single use token or a token like a membership token that is used digitally to actually get access to other rewards, other discounts, whatever it is. I, I mean, it's the same thing as giving out a session ID, right? Like you log in, we know that you are, you know, you are CK Tricky. Um, we have special award rewards for you for being CK Tricky. And that's how you prove your identity to us, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we issue a token to your Starbucks wallet or whatever it is in this case. And you use that token to get access to special rewards, special events, whatever it is. Uh, that makes sense to me from a technological perspective um, that there is an actual use case to generating that token. And the token could be something that does reference a specific image or you know whatever else, but it's not the image that I'm keying off of. It's the token value itself. And I'm validating that receipt in order to give you access to other things. Um, yeah. And it also gives you the ability to share that, right? Like if I'm in the Starbucks community and I don't know if they've gone this full route, but, you know, if I have, you know, say a family friend and I want, like, I'm not using it anymore, maybe I pass that on and there's the ability to actually exchange that token to someone else and give them the rewards as well or, you know, pass it on so I don't get them anymore, they do. That sort of thing is, is useful to me, right? And I, I look at the, that, that use case for tickets and, you know, other spaces as well. It won't surprise me when, you know, SeatGeek, can Ticketmaster and the others actually start issuing NFTs for events because it's the same sort of idea. It makes it easy to actually sell on. They can see provenance of an NFT. It was minted by, you know, Ticketmaster um, and given to a specific wallet. That wallet sold it on to somebody else. um, And, you know, we know where it ended up and it allows them to scan that when they enter the event and, you know, one-time use and make it burnable. So once it's been used, they walk in the door, you burn that NFT and it's gone, right? Um, Mm -hmm. All of that makes sense to me, right, from a technological perspective. And for so long, we've had these blockchains and these like, well, NFTs specifically, right? It's a a solution in search of a problem, but uh, Starbucks is using it to solve an actual not necessarily a problem that they have, but they're using it to enhance their customer base's experience with Starbucks. Great, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, and so that, that's kind of where I'm at with it. I don't know if you've got a different perspective. No, actually, uh, that, that, that makes sense. It's like, it's like kind of a, the only, the only thing to add there is that if you're, you mentioned burning it down, which again, brings us back to the whole idea of centralizing this stuff, right? Like, I don't know how you would, keep that truly decentralized and then burn that NFT, right? Like that might be problematic. I guess what I'm saying is there's still infrastructure at the end of the day behind this stuff. So yes, I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's another unique way to have some truly unique value. I think that's cool, but (laughs) you know, we have done this in other ways, but it's just, again, it's, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's, I think it's cool, but you know, I'm tempering yeah. all of that with still requires centralized infrastructure. Oh, it definitely does. Right. Cause you know, it's all still... within. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. No, go it's ahead. Not... Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it definitely is. Cause if you read about it, they're calling it what Starbucks odyssey. Right. Um, mm. And like you can pay directly for limited edition stamps, right. As they're calling them or NFTs uh, that allow you to accrue different, rewards some of which are you know 
hey, maybe you get a trip to whatever, a coffee farm somewhere, right? And it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting idea. Um, once you've used it though, right? Like whether it gets burned or whether it's recorded that that NFT has been used up so it can't be sold again or whatever it is, it does go back to a centralized authority. Um, yeah, it's, there's a centralized database that's associated with it or a centralized blockchain, whatever they happen to be using. Um, and it might be interesting if, you know, if our friend wants to come talk about it, we can, you know, we could get him on to see if he would give us more information, but I don't know if he can necessarily do that. Yeah, I know they even have a huge disclaimer at the end of the article you posted that was like, future facing looking statements, you know, it gives all the different disclaimers yeah. That, that, yeah, so it's huge. So I don't know. We'll see. I would, I would put the offer out there. If we can do it, we can make it happen. Great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But I would be I would be interested, like uh, anybody else, anyone that's listening, right? If you hear of interesting use cases for Web3, for NFTs, jump into the Slack channel and let us know about them because this is, it's super interesting to, to me to see this intersection between mobile apps, like so dApps, right? So dis- distributed applications, the blockchains that they're using, um, what the technology actually is that's going into this. Uh, because we're, we're at this cross section of we're storing information on these chains. We're doing it from a traditional web app, you know, or application perspective. Um, so there are edge cases that we haven't thought about quite yet that are going to cause problems. You just know that they are, and there's going to be more security issues that pop up from them. So if you hear about stories like Starbucks or like, you know, whatever else that, is larger organizations that are implementing this sorts of technology. Let us know what those are. Um, Cause it, it would be an interesting discussion to have a deeper discussion to have. Absolutely. Anyway. Um, yeah. We've been talking for over an hour. Ken, is there anything else that you want to bring up? I, I did post it up a little earlier. We are teaching practical secure code review at DeepSec oh, in right. Vienna. Um, it's on Twitter. Uh, if you are in the EU and like to, you know, if you've been looking for an opportunity to take that course, please jump in. Um, or if you just want to get together during DeepSec uh, or somewhere around there um, in like mid-November, let us know. We'd love to do a you know happy hour somewhere, or even just a you know an event while we're in the in the Europe Europe region. Um, yeah. Anything else, Ken, that you want to bring up for today? Uh, nope, I think we're good. That was, uh, that was, yeah. Thanks for, yeah. yeah. It was a good, thanks for the podcast. Thanks for everyone who's listening. It's, yeah. And I, nothing else to add <laughs> today. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, well, thanks everybody for joining. Thanks for the feedback and the interactions. Uh, we love doing the podcast. Obviously, that's why we're here. So, um, Appreciate all the the feedback and we'll see everyone next week. Oh, next week, it's probably going to be an irregular podcast day as well. Uh, Just watch the YouTube channel and Slack and Twitter for updates. Yeah, we'll try and get like this time, you know, we kind of like last minute decided to do it. But for next week, we'll we we already know there's going to be an interruption. We didn't know that this week. So we'll try and like schedule it ahead and and communicate it better this for next week. Yeah. Yep. Sweet. Sweet. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you all online. Thanks.